it's a good thing to be gathered with your people, God, to be gathered with um, a family that will continue with us uh, both from now um, until the very end of time and beyond. Um, thank you for the privilege of gathering together. We know that many of our brothers and sisters around the world don't have that privilege today. And so that many worship um, alone, uh, many worship in small groups in fear, and yet today we have a choice and a chance um, to gather together um, loudly, boisterously, and joyously um, to celebrate uh, with one another and to celebrate each other before you. Thank you for the amazing work that you did to draw all of us um, to you and to one another in this place. So um, honor yourself, uh, we pray, as um, you speak to us through your word in Christ's name. Uh, amen. I'm going to apologize for my computer. Uh, my printer died this morning, uh, causing a, a little bit of panic as blank page after blank page continued to spill out of the printer. And, um, and it was this incredibly frustrating thing when you're actually prepared, you're, you're just getting ready to go, and then it's just not working. Um, and that's why I appreciated um, Joe's testimony as he was sharing about that discipleship experience and sharing that sense of frustration you have, right? When you think, I keep trying to live faithfully. I keep attempting to do what God has called me to do. I've been reading your word. I've been praying to you. I've been immersed in fellowship, growing in discipleship. And yet, um, day after day, or if you're more like me, every 20 to 30 minutes or so, um, it all seems to come for naught. And I think that sense of despair and heaviness and weariness, right? Um, you do want to cry out at times, how long, oh Lord, is this supposed to continue? And, and that's part of what Advent is about for us, isn't it? That we look back to Christ's first coming, we anticipate his second coming, and in between, um, we cry out for him to come. Um, to remember the goodness that he displayed in his first coming when he lived among us, and anticipate his second coming, when finally all things will be made new. When we will fully experience what it is to be made new, that we will live fully into what it means that Christ now dwells within us, right, through the Holy Spirit, that all parts of ourself now belong to him and live and respond to him um, and resonate to his voice. One of the first Advent hymns I ever learned uh, was when I went to college where I was introduced to the idea of Advent um, during some of the worship that we had in our InterVarsity Fellowship. It was the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I don't know if you know it, um, I suspect you do, but the verses run like this, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou day spring, come and cheer our spirits by thy advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. O come, thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go. O come, desire of nations, bind all people in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease, fill all the worlds with heaven's peace. And the refrain is rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. But it's an interesting course because it's not, Emmanuel has arrived. Um, but it's anticipating rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee someday, at some point, Israel. And so just wait. It's promised it will happen, but it hasn't had quite yet. And if you know the tune, you realize um, it resolves in a funny way, not quite complete. 
because it still leaves you with that sense of longing and waiting. And that's where really you've been with Abraham over the last two weeks, I suspect, right? You've waited with him. And you've considered the promises that have been offered to him. So he's a man who's gone off with his um, family uh, from Ur of the Chaldees up to Haran. And God says, look, leave everything and come to the land I'm going to show you. And then your descendants are going to be like the sands of the sea, far more numerous than you could ever count. And he responds and he waits for a child. And then last week you were in um, Genesis 15, I believe, where God reiterates this covenant. And look, your descendants will be like the stars up in the sky, and there's going to be so many of them. And I'm going to do this really disturbing covenant ceremony with you. We're, we're going to chop these animals. I'm going to walk past you in fire and in darkness, and you are going to know that I'm your God. And it's coming. This is how much I love the nations. All of the nations will be blessed through you. And through your descendants. And if you're Abraham, you respond, and then you wait. And then in the intervening passages, you wait a very long time. And so then you take things into your own hands, and you think, well, God wants me to have descendants. He's promised me descendants. He intends for me to have descendants. Um, and my wife seems accommodating. I will take her maidservant, which was appropriate, though awkward at the time, and um, have another son, and it's going to be Ishmael. And then it's clear that wasn't the answer. And God comes again and says, no, just wait a little longer until your wife actually does, surprise, surprise, have a child that you name Isaac because you remind yourself that when the angel came to promise that this child would be born this year, your wife just laughed in scorn, right? There's nothing happening in this body now. And God says, you laughed. And she says, I didn't. And he's like, oh, I heard you. And then the passage before the section that we had read to us this morning, because, um, like I said, it was awkward that you had had a child through your wife's maidservant. Um, your wife is irritated, and you wake up early one morning, you, pick, you call her and your son, who you love, and you say, you need to go now. And You give her bread and water and send her away. And those of us who know our scriptures well know, in his mercy, God meets her and promises her that he will care for this child as well. So with all of that waiting, not just years of waiting, but decades of waiting, decade after decade of waiting, you get to chapter 22 with really one of the most awkward and disturbing stories in Scripture. I seem to come to CBC just in time to speak on these um, often. But... Look at how it's set up. A test is announced for Abraham, isn't it, in verses 1 through 3? Now, sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. All right, if you're Abraham, you're thinking, what kind of test is this? What kind of conversation are we having now? Now, I want to say for us as readers of this text, we're very familiar with it. It appears all the time in Sunday school, which is also a disturbing kind of story to be told when you're a small child. But there, there are two ways of approaching this text I want to suggest. The first is to read it through the eyes of Abraham as a father. And I suspect for most of us, that's what comes naturally. Um, 
for those of us who are parents, it becomes very natural, right? I mean, you read those words, and for all that it's a story where we know the ending in advance, if you're really reading it intentionally, you're horrified, right? Any parent knows from the moment, well, from the moment that you know you're expecting, but certainly from the moment you've held a child in your hands for the very first time, um, to every moment where you've shed a tear for the pain that the child's experienced, whether it be physical or emotional, for every prayer that you've prayed in hope for that child or prayed about that child, um, you're horrified at this. And if you're a child yourself, which would be all of us, as complicated as our relationship can be with our parents, um, the thought that the one person in the world who you should be able to rely on Right? who exists biologically, at least exclusively, to ensure that you reach adulthood, is now turning on you. It's, it's terrible and painful and confusing. I want to suggest, though, that the second way to read this passage is not just to read it through the eyes of Abraham as father, but it's really critical to think about reading it through the eyes of Abraham as a disciple. Now, it's not that the two are actually disconnected in practice, right? Because, frankly, it's Abraham as father that makes, gives Abraham the disciple such a problem in this passage. I mean, it, it would be terrible, admittedly, to murder a stranger. Let's be very clear. Um, but what makes this discipleship problem for Abraham specifically difficult is it's his son. It's his only son. It's his beloved son the only child that he has left. It's precisely because he is a father that he's facing this challenge as a disciple. But I want to suggest that it's actually, it's his discipleship which is the center of the story and not particularly his status as father. Note the context. It's in verse 1. God tested Abraham when he made this request. And I want to suggest that it seems monstrous to read it this way, right? It seems like, what, you think because he's a disciple and not a father, it doesn't matter. And that's not what I'm saying at all. I think, actually, it's really critical to know that he's a father, and that's precisely the problem that he's facing. But the challenge before us, I think, is from the perspective of faith, everything has to be God-centered, God-dominated. God-focused. Every relationship that we have, every aspiration that we hold, every person that we love is somewhat relativized around who God is, what his call is, and what he's about. And I think that if it rubs you a little bit the wrong way, and it should if you're a person who loves their family and who cares for them, that maybe we actually can appreciate the specific problem that Abraham's facing right now. And probably also for all of us, myself included as the father of two small children, that the call to, from God and the call by God is not particularly towards family but towards faith. Not toward our home but toward holiness. That is horrifying and is startling and as demanding as it is, that there is an unalterable minimum which God says, me, more than anything else in the world. 
your loyalty has to be toward me. Your imagination needs to be caught up in me. Your aspirations need to be caught up with me. The tears that you shed for pain need to be the tears that you shed primarily because you understand the pain I experience as I see this world that I love, these people that I've created in my own image that I've died for, that I long to come to know me. Weep for this, first and foremost. Not that we can't weep or have hope or love our families, our friends, or our communities, or neighborhood, but unapologetically, God seems to call for our allegiance first and foremost to him. We're now preparing for the Urbana um, Missions Convention, which InterVarsity holds every three years for college students. Um, and as part of that, I was reflecting on my own first Urbana experience, which was in 1987 as a college sophomore. I've told you all stories about before I know about my parents, who love God, are faithful followers of Jesus, but um, really uh, being very typical kind of Asian Chinese parents, um, really wanted me to have a professional degree and pursue a professional kind of calling. Um, and so they were hesitant to send me to a missions convention because, you know, the big fear of parents sending children to a missions convention is their children might be called to be missionaries. And so my parents sat me down and said, well, you know, we want you to follow Jesus, but don't go all fanatical about this. Um, you have responsibilities um, to your own children and to future generations, and how will you support them? And I remember thinking, I don't even get dates right now. The idea of children, pretty distant from my mind, this future family. And seeing as I only have a three-year-old now in 2011, you can appreciate why in 1987 it seemed like a very long time away. So I went, though, because I was a good student leader because I wanted to hear what God's will was for the church around the nations and the issue of missions and um, I was mildly open myself to hearing God's call for what he wanted me to do and who he wanted me to be. I didn't really think it would be overseas missions but you know you go in kind of open-handed but I, secretly I wrestled with the very question my parents had uh, paused before me. Um, my parents uh, are Chinese, they grew up in the Philippines, uh, my dad particularly grew up very poor around World War II, and so I knew that their entire family trajectory had been sacrificing everything so that my generation would experience prosperity and hope. And um, I did think a little bit about what would happen to future generations, because I'm Chinese, right? We are often told um, there are 5,000 years of continuous history, <laughs> and it all rests on you to be faithful to the next 5,000 years, right? So um, I remember wrestling, you know, could I, if God called me, could I go do this? Could I be raising support? Could I go overseas? What would happen to my children? How would I educate them, right? All of those questions that you can ask as a sophomore in college that seem very weighty um, and are nothing compared to the weightiness that you actually feel when you're a little older and have children, I shall say. But they were real at the time. And I remember it was kind of rolling around back of my head. I was listening to speaker after speaker. And... Um, it came like a bolt out of nowhere, but Floyd McClung, who was one of uh, the leaders of YWAM, Youth with a Mission, working in the streets of Amsterdam, was speaking, and as a complete throwaway line, he just said, you know, missionaries have always buried their children on the mission field. And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And as I began to think about the reality of world mission and began to think about what he said and the implications that occurred to me, that's absolutely true. Um, you can go to mission uh, centers in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, and what's striking is not how many missionaries are buried there, but how many other tombstones are there listing the, a, um, 
memorializing the bodies of people who only lived a few days, weeks, months, or years. Because as hard as missionary work was for adults, it was far more costly and dangerous for the children who were there. And it occurred to me as a Chinese-American that my grandparents first heard the gospel from missionaries, people who were willing to sacrifice themselves and put their children at risk so that my grandparents' children would grow up in a family of faith. And all of a sudden I realized that my concern for my own future children was somehow misplaced. Other people risked their children so that I would hear the gospel, not directly, I was brought up here, but so my family would hear if they were willing to sacrifice so much, was it too much for, me, for God to potentially ask me to do the same for someone else? So God decides to test Abraham in this pretty terrible way. What's striking to me in verse 3 is that Abraham goes and takes Isaac and his servants and a donkey and some wood without any argument or scheming. You'll note in verse 3. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he cut wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now, think about this, right? God announces this terrible thing. Abraham goes, okay, and then the next morning early gets up and goes. Now, this is the Abraham, right, who when confronted by the fact that God was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, a city filled with people he didn't know terribly well other than his own nephew, actually argued and bargained with God, right? What happens if there are a hundred people there, God, who actually are honorable and righteous? Are you really going to destroy them? Are you that kind of God? And God goes, okay, I won't do it. And he actually bargains like he, it's like a Middle Eastern marketplace at that point, right? They're haggling together is one of the best ways to describe it. And, um, they get down to about five people, and, and then Abraham just stops arguing. Now, it's clear from what happens in the rest of the story, God can't even find five people in that city that are worth saving. But somehow, in the course of that argument, Abraham sees God and realizes God is just, God is holy, and God is merciful, and so he doesn't need to argue to the very bottom. But right, this is an Abraham who argues, who bargains. This is the Abraham who, when he's worried his own life is at risk, when he's traveling down um, in a foreign land, goes, you know what, Sarah, um, you've been my wife for a long time, but maybe the best way to go is to say that you're my sister, and then, you know, they can take you, and then nobody will hurt me, and gets so, right, he's scheming, trying to protect himself, ensure that he's safe, that he's secure, that his future is okay. This is the Abraham, so, who, when he hears God promises about having descendants, but doesn't see any descendants, takes matters into his own hands, and says, hey, Sarah, how about Hagar? Right? Abraham's a schemer. Abraham is an arguer. Abraham is a bargainer. And in this story, Abraham does none of those things. Because somehow, I think, over the course of his discipleship, Abraham's learned enough about who God is and what God's like that finally, when he's invited, he goes. Now, this seems pretty impossible I suspect for many of us, right, if you were offered that to go without seeming question, conversation, bargaining, or scheming, and I know it's a difficult story to imagine, um, 
as I was preparing, I was thinking about uh, an experience I, uh, I had when I was on staff the, uh, in Chicago. Um, what would it mean to really believe that you were going to take your child and offer them up to God? Not in that kind of, you know, let's dedicate a child to God. They'll be cute, squeal a little bit, but we'll get the prayer over with and they can sit down sort of way. But really dedicate them, like, completely to God in that way. Um, I remember a student named Michelle Unrath. She was a student at Valparaiso University. Um, she died in a really tragic car accident during her sophomore year of college. And her father was also an alumnus of uh, Valparaiso, um, a I think actually involved in our fellowship as well. And I remember um, hearing about Michelle's death, praying for her as part of our staff team, and inviting other people to intercede, right? It's a tragic thing to lose a college student, um, to lose one of your children that way. Uh, what really struck me about what happened was the story that the staff worker told uh, the week afterwards. Um, they had cremated uh, Michelle's body, and uh, her father brought her ashes to the Valparaiso Chapel uh, for a memorial service for the students. Now, Valparaiso is um, a Lutheran-affiliated institution, so it has this gorgeous, large chapel that kind of dominates one side of the campus. And so all the students had come in. Um, they had sung a few songs. And then um, Michelle's father carried the urn with Michelle's ashes up the center aisle and uh, placed them at the front of the church. And his testimony um, was quite amazing. He said, you know, um, ever since I've had a daughter, uh, I've dreamed about her getting married here at the chapel of Valparaiso. And so when she was a student here, I thought about that hope even more. And he said, um, today's the will be my one chance to walk my daughter down this aisle. And he said, um, but this is what I'm confident about. I'm actually bringing her into the arms of her true bridegroom. I'm bringing her into the arms of the one person in all the universe who will never leave her nor forsake her, who has loved her both in this life until death, but never depart. I'm actually bringing her to the one place where she will always be safe, always be cherished, always be secure. And so I will never have a chance to bring my daughter down the aisle as a bride to some human man, but I bring her as a bride to her intended bridegroom our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those of us who hear that story might think, wow, that's some pretty deep denial he's in, unable to mourn for his daughter. Or, wow, isn't that powerful how sublimation really works? But I want to suggest that these heuristic devices, sublimation, psychology, sociology, ultimately reduce us to far less than what it means to be human when it doesn't account for the fact that not only are we emotion, not only are we body or just mind, but we have souls as well. I'm absolutely convinced, because I've had people talk to Michelle Unrath's father, that he was absolutely sincere, continues to believe that to this day. What he was asked to do isn't exactly what Abraham was asked to do, but it's awfully similar in overall approach and understanding of who our children are and who God is. The story goes on. Not only, I think, does the test clarify for Abraham the absolute priority of who God needs to be, but the test actually clarifies what was being tested, I think. Because Abraham goes and he seems very willing, I think, to sacrifice Isaac. 
right? He gathers up the stuff, he gets to Mount Moriah, which is a three-day journey. So at any point during the three days, I don't know about you, I might have set off, right, in a kind of, I'm going to gut through this. But by day two, I'd be like, hey, look at that bright, shiny thing over there. Let's go look. And slowly I would have diverted us far away from Mount Moriah. Um, he gets to Mount Moriah. He tells the servants, go wait here. A Isaac and I will go to the mountain and offer our worship to God. And so Abraham goes. And when Isaac asks him, so, Dad, um, we have the wood. We have the stuff. Where's the sacrifice? Abraham responds, I think, very ambiguously. And I'm told it works both in English and in Hebrew. You'll notice how he responds in verse 8. When um, Isaac goes, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Is that evocative or a positive? For those of you who aren't so English grammar savvy any longer, is he saying, Isaac, God will provide the lamb? Or is it one of those, God will provide the lamb who is Isaac? A little ambiguous in the text, and I think intentionally so. More than that, right, he actually allows Isaac to carry up the very tools of his own possible death on his shoulders. Here, carry the wood for the burnt offering on your shoulders, my son. And then Isaac sets up his altar, binds his son hand and foot as you're commanded to, and then raises his knife for the slaughter. I don't think he's acting at this point or playing out what he thinks is um, a non-starter. Now, some commentators, having read this um, story, like to point out that I, Abraham fully expects that even if he has to kill Isaac, he knows God has promised that his descendants will come through Isaac, so God is likely just to resurrect Isaac. And I suspect they draw this from Hebrews 11 a little bit. But, I mean, parents, let's be honest, right? This is where I think commentators sometimes need to meet real people, as Sam has pointed out. Um, even if God were to raise Isaac from the dead after the sacrifice, you would still be the man who killed your son. You would still have that image of having to do it in your head and heart until the day you die, right? It is no comfort to me in that situation to think, I'm going to kill you. I'm sure you will come back to life later. <laughs> Small comfort, I think. Other commentators, um, Jewish commentators included, really think, well, Isaac was probably potentially anywhere from his teens to early 30s at this point. The language about child is a little, un, um, a little vague. It meant anybody under your father's authority. And if you're Asian, like Middle Eastern people do, are, you know that really can go to your 80s if your parents live long enough. Um, they think, well, maybe Isaac was a willing victim. I mean, Abraham was kind of old. Isaac could have run away. And um, my BA paper was on English, medieval English uh, plays about the Bible. And in one of the play cycles, um, Abraham's about to take Isaac to the altar and then just completely breaks. I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. You're my son. And in this play, um, Isaac actually says, Father, you have to do it. God commanded it. It would be better for you and for me to go through with it, which, again, I think is incredibly charitable um, and very hopeful and would say a great deal about who Isaac is. Um, I don't know. I just know people, and I find that fantastic though a beautiful image. Um, 
I think you have to take seriously the fact that Abraham was willing to do it. What's striking then is what happens next, and we're all incredibly familiar with it, is Abraham accepts God's substitution of the ram for Isaac, right? At the last minute, as Abraham's about to do it, God goes, wait, stop. And Abraham pulls back, probably confused, frightened, um, and maybe relieved. All of it, right? You don't even know, like, is God like, I, how could you do that? Don't you know me well enough not to do this kind of thing yet? Right, that would be a very reasonable thing. You can imagine a Bible story like that. Like, Abraham, don't you know me well enough? Like, really, that's when you should be arguing with me. Right? We've already done this once at Sodom and Gomorrah. You could have done it again. Or you're thinking, could it be? Is, is there a chance out? And God says, don't lay a hand on that boy. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God. And because you have not withheld from, from me your son, your only son. And then Abraham looked up and he sees a ram in a thicket caught, takes the ram as a substitute and, and sacrifices it on that altar. Um. Now, if you're a modern storyteller, this is one of those terrible, we actually call them, right, uh, kind of things, God in the machine, where out of nowhere a solution appears that makes the story not so terrible. Um, but what's amazing, right, is God stops Abraham and provides an alternative for the sacrifice. And what's interesting to me is what, how Abraham names that place. Abraham names that place, the Lord will provide. He doesn't name that place the other sacrifice, or the Lord spared Isaac, what Abraham really learns is the Lord is going to provide in this situation. He's learned this bargainer, this schemer, this manipulator, that when faced with the paradox of who God is and what God wants and God's promises and God's demands, that God himself will provide the way through. And that's the lesson that Abraham has learned and has been proven to him by that test. Not that he had great faith, but that when faced with impossible paradox set before him by God, that God himself would provide the answer through it, right? That's, I think, the hope that we all have when you think, or that Joe and I share, that all of us share, right? Be holy like I am holy. And work out your faith with fear and trembling. How do you do that? God will provide. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, as weak and as half-hearted as you are, how will God do that? God himself will provide. Continue to forgive, not just once or seven times or 70 times seven. How can I do that when I've been hurt so frequently and so regularly and so continually and intentionally by this person? I don't know, but God will provide. Right? There are two kinds of tests that we take in the world. Um, I think of them as the MCAT test and the other kind of test. I think of it as the MCAT kind of test because I'm thinking about my dad um, appropriately, right? It's Christmas. We all see our families again. Um, I decided not to be a doctor. I've told that story before. But um, throughout the two years after, I um, decided not to be a doctor but was finishing college. And then into law school, dad kept saying, are you sure you don't want to take the MCAT? And I said, why would I want to take the MCAT? I do not want to be a doctor, right? My dad, on the day I graduated from law school, wearing my cap and gown, holding a diploma, still offered to pay for med school. So dad was a little obsessed with it. And he said, but his answer was always, so that you know you could do it. And I thought, you know, dad? Yeah, exactly. I'm pretty sure I can do it. I'm pretty good at these tests. I don't think that's what you're really thinking about. I think you'd like to know I could do it so that you could tell your friends, oh, he scored really well in the MCAT, but decided not to go. 
So there are those kind of tests where you're trying to prove to the test taker. There are other kinds of tests that we've taken or have been given to us, right, where you take it so that you know you can do it. It's those tests that, like, you watch athletes be put through by their coaches where, where they keep pushing you until you make your breakthrough and the coach goes, I've always known you could do it. I just needed you to know that you could do it. And there's a big difference between them saying that and when they're really sincere about it. I think this is one of those kinds of tests for Abraham. I don't think God's surprised. I don't think God is taken like, oh, who knew? I think what God is finally saying is, look, Abraham, when finally faced with a problem that you can't solve, this is the one time you didn't bargain, you didn't scheme, you didn't manipulate. You just did what I asked you to do. And now you know you can do it. You see, the real problem facing Abraham is not how can I kill my son, as real as that is. From the passage, the problem is this. How will God, who's promised descendants through Isaac, fulfill his promise when he's asked me to do this very thing? Right? It's a problem about God's character. Is he holy? Is he loving? It's a problem about resolving God's actions. Hasn't he promised this? Hasn't he commanded that? Who is God? Can he be trusted and can be relied upon? Will he provide what's necessary for us to complete the mission that he's called us to? It's perhaps really instructive and important to note during this Advent season in particular how God resolves this problem for himself, by himself, and through himself. When God, who loves this world and created it and longs for its redemption, but still must judge its evil to be faithful to himself, addresses the problem of how will I both demonstrate my justice and concern for righteousness as well as my mercy and love, well, right, he takes his son, his only son, his beloved son, which is the language that God uses for Isaac, allows his son, his only son and beloved son, to carry the very tools of his own sacrifice on his shoulders to the place where he will be sacrificed, where God makes himself the substitute so that we don't need to die for our sins. And that God doesn't flinch there's no mercy extended to him in this situation. And he asks Abraham to consider nothing which God actually isn't, in fact, willing, able, planning to do, has already done, has already accomplished. And the implication for Abraham, I think, is this. In a way that he's never grasped before, he realizes everything that he has is truly God's. And it's all been given to him. And he continues to have it. And I think for Isaac, I mean, how would you live after an experience like this? Wouldn't you live with every breath knowing your life has been redeemed? That every moment of your life from that day forward had been given to you, won for you by God? that somebody else had died in your place and on your behalf, wouldn't you live every moment with a great deal of freedom, a great deal of hope, even when faced with despair of continued failure or weakness or limitation, think, everything is a gift from God. What have I to fear? We didn't read them, but what's interesting to, in this passage is that in verses 15 through 18, the promises that you heard in Genesis 12 and 15 are reiterated again. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, I have not withheld your son, your only son, I will certainly bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. 
Your descendants will, be the possession, will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. The man to whom the promise is offered, who schemed, who bargained, becomes the man who really, for the last time, hears this promise of God and I think truly believes. It's actually the last significant thing that Abraham does in Genesis. I mean, he mourns his wife's death, he fathers others' children, but he knows everything's going to happen through Isaac and he can trust God for it. Right? That's what will drive us into outreach. That's what will drive us into renewal. That's what will drive us into community. That's what gives us confidence as you move forward in this Advent season. Nobody needs Christians who have all the answers. Nobody needs to know exactly how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, or through whom it will happen. What Abraham's story seems to remind us during this Advent season as we live between Christ's first coming and his second is that all you need is sufficient faith to continue to move ahead, believing that when God has set an impossible problem before us, how will we reach the entire world that you've called us to reach with the, limit, with the actual resources that we have? How will we become holy like God is holy? How will we... God's answer seems to be, follow me. I'll provide what's necessary because I'm the Lord who provides. And that's why there's love and joy, peace and hope this Advent season as we look at Christ who came, who did it all for us once and will complete everything that needs to be completed for us by the time he returns. O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. Rejoice, rejoice, O Israel. Let me pray. Lord, even though I have hope that you'll provide everything that's needed, it still doesn't take away from um, the incredible pain, sorrow, fear, and despair that Abraham must have felt as he responded in faith. And so, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here who wrestle with despair or sorrow, pain or grief today, would you give us sufficient hope to trust that you will provide what's necessary so that we too, like Abraham, can say, we know the Lord. He's the Lord who has provided. And may we celebrate the provision of your son. As he came as a small helpless child, died in our place on our behalf, came again to life, and for whom we long. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and ransom this world from its sin, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.